0: We finished a four-week welcome class this morning during the Sunday school hour, and it's uh, supremely encouraging to hear, in part, the testimonies of others who have uh, found their church home in Lion and Lamb through the years. And we sometimes, uh, depending on how we think, what we think, uh, when you hear those stories, you're reminded that when God saves us. God initiates his saving love towards us and saves us. He doesn't just save us. We're not sort of an individual, but he saves us and we're part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, which is significant. But, but more importantly, more practically, what we find also is that God makes us a, a family member in a local church family. And so much of our spiritual life is meant to be lived out of the local church as our spiritual family, and the the stories that I heard this morning were just a great, great reminder of that. We had an occasion several years ago, a friend of one of our daughters was over for supper. They'd been studying together that day, and she stayed for supper, a bright, bright young gal. And uh, we were around the table having our normal family time, so Kathy made a delicious meal, and the girls and, and us are all around the table, and we're having a great time, discussion this and that, uh, a melee at, in some ways just on the, you know, sometimes you couldn't hear one, one conversation for another. There's so much to share and so much going on. But uh, when supper was winding down, uh, this young lady informed us that this wasn't at all what her family did. In, in fact, she said, I've never sat around the table with my family and had a meal like we just had. And what was absolutely normal for our girls and our family was an anomaly. It was like a, a visit to outer space for her. This was nothing that she had seen demonstrate in her life. Her normal, I would argue, wasn't normal at all, wasn't healthy, wasn't what God wanted for her and the family that she'd come from. For Kathy and I, we were bringing with us to our marriage elements that we had been informed with growing up. So, big Roman Catholic families, and a normal meal was, everyone was around the table together. This was the norm, say grace before and after. Everybody's talking, everybody's having a good time around the table, that was normal. Well, that's what we brought with us into our family life, right? So, all of us are bringing our own history. And we're bringing with us the attitudes, or the thoughts, concepts, priorities of our families of origin. and we might think that our normal is normal or healthy or desirable, and it may not be. Excuse me. And how do we determine what's desirable and what's normal? You know, what lens do we bring to say, in my life, or as, as I interact with others, and specifically this morning, in the life of the church as family, how do I know what's desirable and what's normal? And we are the better for growing up where there's this free, open fellowship in in our families, our families of origin, right? But we want to bring that same sense to the church family because that's where our lives get lived out. It's not just our own nuclear families. It's the family of God that's important here as well and, and actually formative and key. That we're going to be talking about the church as family this morning. If you look through the New Testament, you'll see the church, so that's what we're a part of as Christians in Jesus Christ since the day of Pentecost forward, God's working in what he calls the church. But the church gets described different ways, it's called different things. So if you look in the New Testament, you'll see the church is called a temple, it's called the bride of Christ, it's called the body of Christ, it's described as a flock. But the particular way we want to be talking about that descriptively of the church this morning is the church as family. We'll wind down later reading a verse out of 1 Timothy 3. But in that verse, he says, The church is the household of God. The church is the household of God. The church is the place God, bear with me, use your imagination. The church is the place God comes at the end of the work day and sits down and says, this is home. Uh, the, the church of the living God is his family on earth. So we're thinking about the church this morning as family, as God's family. And specifically, re- remember, we can say I'm a Christian, so I'm part of the church. We say the church universal is the church around the world. But guys, it's not meaningful unless you live that out in a local expression of the universal reality. So when you read the New Testaments and all the commands and the exhortations to Christians about other Christians, that gets lived out or it does not get lived out in the context of a local church setting. So that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to be in Acts again. And on these selected passages, we've said that we would look at passages that had significant theological impact or importance. That's one... Criteria for the selections. But the other is passages that have particular applicational value for us here and now. And that's where the message this morning will take us. If you have a study sheet, this is where we're going to go this morning in order. The description of life in the early church. This is going to be the passages we'll look at in Acts, Acts of the Apostles. We're also going to look at the early church's commitment to provision for each other, hands-on, taking care of one another. We'll see that the mission of the church is meant to flow out of the family life of the church. Remember, Jesus called the church. They don't know what's going on. There's something new going on. And that new entity, the church, that's just being formed, it has a new mission. The mission is evangelizing the world evangelizing the world, the mission of the church is not in competition with the life of the church, the family life of the church. And then I want to close looking at our own experience. What does this look like? What was normal for the early church? We're going to focus on that in these two key passages in Acts, but you'll see that affirmed throughout the epistles as well. We don't have time to bring a lot of those in, but you'll see the norm that's, that starts in Acts 2 and 4 that we'll look at this morning. That is the norm For the church age? And how does our life look in comparison to that early norm? So that's where we're going. If you have your Bibles or your apps, you can turn to Acts 2. Bring us up to speed. You remember uh, Jesus had lived and he had been crucified, he was buried, he rose from the dead. And so Acts starts out with that resurrection, that the resurrected Jesus is still on the earth. And you remember, he's hanging out for about 40 days. He's talking to the apostles during that time. And so that group that Jesus had hung out with early on, they're still together now after his resurrection. And you get to Acts chapter 2, and this is the beginning. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So they're all together in one place. Jesus, 40 days in, he ascends back to heaven, he says, stay in Jerusalem, the Spirit's coming, the promise of the Father's going to come, so you go back there. So the group that was together around Jesus remained together, together in Jerusalem, waiting for the coming of the Spirit. They didn't know that it would be on Pentecost Sunday, but they're doing exactly what Jesus said, they're not only waiting But the group that had gathered around Jesus, they were together around Jesus, they're still together around each other waiting for the promise Jesus had said would come. So we've talked a little bit about this in chapter 1. Luke says, on one hand, Jesus began some things, and those are continuing on, but now we got to chapter 1, and Jesus says, oh, and by the way, there's going to be a new mission, and you're going to take the gospel, the truth about me, you're going to take it to Jerusalem, judea a little bigger neighborhood samaria and then to the roman world to all the world in that order so on the day of pentecost you remember the holy spirit came there together in one place and they're praying and the holy spirit comes and you remember there's a ruckus because of this so there's probably sound like a freight train or a tornado sound like a mighty rushing wind it looks like there's flames of fire over the disciples head And they start speaking, praising God in languages they hadn't learned. And out of that commotion, you remember that this is a feast for the Jews. So there's Jews in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, If you think of the... Muslims today making a, a trip to uh, Mecca, there's that sense of Muslims from all over the world will go for that occasion. Well, that was similar here. So Jews from all over, they hear the ruckus, they're wondering what's going on, and so they come, and you remember in Acts 2, that's where Peter begins to explain to them what's going on, and so that's what we're going to pick up here. Now Peter tells them, <laughs> it's a great passage and we're not going through the whole thing, you know, but Peter tells them, you know, this Jesus, he was the one we were waiting for. And you remember then he points the finger at him and he says, you crucified the Lord of life. You rejected the Messiah that was promised that you thought you were waiting for. And so that day he tells them, he concludes, the text says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, what, what do we do about this? And so you remember Peter tells them, you need to repent of what you've done And you need to believe and be baptized to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And so the text there in Acts 2 says about 3,000 people believed that first day. They believed, they were baptized, and guys, they were the beginning of the church as the family of God. So remember, God started something new on Pentecost Sunday. It was entirely new, it was unlooked for, unexpected by the Jews, but you remember we said when we talked about mission, the thing that the Jewish nation had trouble getting over was it was no longer about Jews as Jews in the land of promise, it was about Jews as the nucleus for an extension of God's work that would take in Jews and Gentiles from all over the world. So this was entirely new and it started, this was the inception, Pentecost Sunday, the 120 upstairs that got the spirit first and then 3000 believed that day. So in part, listen to this from Acts 2, or read this along with me in 42 through 47, because Luke describes, so you got this brand new entity. They really don't know up from down yet. They they have no idea in the stream of what God's doing, where they fit in, but they've been baptized by the Spirit. They're part of God's new work. And listen to the description Luke gives us of this early stage of life in the church. Starting in verse 42, it says... They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. There's that same thought, the group that was together now is a bigger group. They are together, and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Look at verse 42. It uses a key word. It says they were devoted. They were devoting themselves. Devoted there means they were persisting in a thing. They were intently engaged in, they were attending constantly to, and then Luke told us four separate things. Some commentators break this down a little differently, but he specifically mentions four things. So he says, they were devoted, the early church is devoted to the apostles' teaching so think of the context there. This is a Jewish audience, right? It's a Jewish group, because Jews from around the Roman Empire had come they're all Jews. They all have that ethnic religious background. Uh, there would be some Gentiles there too, who had embraced Yahweh and Judaism, but they would be the, the minority in this group. So the Jews, they would, many of them, would know, to some degree, their Bible, which would be our Old Testament. So what's, what's the need? Why do they say immediately they're being devoted to the apostles' teaching? So at least there's a couple things going on. Uh, they've, G, uh, Peter says Jesus was the Messiah. And the spirits quicken them and they get it and they believe and they're baptized. But no doubt after that initial day, the apostles are explaining how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Prophecies and promises about who the Messiah would be, from what tribe, and what he would look like and what he would do, because Jesus was the suffering servant. He was the Messiah as the suffering servant of the Old Testament. So, no doubt, on one hand, the apostles are describing how Jesus fulfilled their scriptures. But I suspect, too, there's this other element. They had spent three years in change with Jesus. And Jesus had spoken with them for 40 days after his resurrection. So they've had intimacy and contact and communication with Jesus that these folks never had, things that weren't included in Scripture at that time. So the early church is learning about Jesus, his person and his work from the Old Testament, he's the fulfillment as well as no doubt elements that he might have shared or spoken during the Gospels as well. But the apostles have the content that the early church needs. So the early church is devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says they're also devoted to fellowship. If you know any Greek terms, koinonia is the, is the Greek term used for this. So they are sharing life together. And together was one of those key phrases here. So the early group was together, now the 3,000 strong group is together, and they're living life together. They're living life like a large extended family, koinonia, participating in each other's lives. And we'll mention a couple of things next, what that looked like. So they're devoted to living life together. And part of what that looks like is they're devoted to breaking bread this probably means a couple of things. Uh, breaking bread is they're sharing meals from house to house. The text says from one home to another. So guys, they are getting together and they're eating a meal together. They're doing community together. Uh, Kathy and I were at our uh, daughter and son-in-law's house last night around a table, really a feast. With, they were nice enough to invite us to their home group, basically, And uh, we have all this good food, and we have all this good fellowship, and that's exactly what the early church was doing. They were hanging out with each other. They weren't just coming to a meeting on Sunday morning. They were breaking down later, and they were spending time with each other in each other's homes. And eating a meal together is a big deal, especially in Scripture. It's sharing your life together. If you ate a meal with someone, it was a special way of fellowship or communication. You You were making bonds there. So the early Christians, they were having this fellowship that included breaking bread in their homes together. Now, pretty much all the commentators agree that this probably also is meant to include the thought of breaking bread as the Lord's Supper. So you remember the Lord's Supper, we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, first and third Sundays here, right? We take the bread that's broken and we take the juice and we remember Jesus as he told us to his death and resurrection for us until he comes. The Passover meal that that Jesus shared with his apostles is a real meal. They had a real meal, and at the end of that, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And when you go to the epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, talks about a setting in what would no doubt have been a large church setting. Corinth was a significant town in which the church, corporate guys, they had a potluck like we do. When Lion and Lamb has potlucks, we do it on first or third Sundays because we connect the Lord's Supper with the communal meal that was always intentional on when we scheduled those. Well, that's what they were doing. They were having a potluck as a church. And in the context of that communal meal with each other, that's when they were remembering the Lord in his death and resurrection on their behalf. So that's probably what was going on. They're living together, they're eating together, and as they do, they are worshiping together by remembering the Lord in his death and resurrection. They were devoted to that. And then that last one is they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Prayer comes up in Acts 30 times, 30 times. The only other book of the Bible that has anything close to that is Psalms, which has 39 references to prayer. But far and away, besides the book of Psalms, Acts talks about prayer more than any other book of the Bible. So the early church was praying. And you'll see this. If you read through Acts, you'll see the early church was praying with each other routinely. It was their response to anything that went on. The early church was praying together. So they were devoted to teaching, fellowship, community together eating together worshiping together and praying together so when Luke and God want us to think about what does life together in God's family in his household look like there's four big rocks that start that whole thing out and that at some significant level those are meant to be the big rocks that our lives are organized around in our expressing our union in God's family in the local church. Not, not the church out there that I can talk about and think about but have no practical relationship with. This is meant to be what Christians live out the life together, what that looks like. So as you think about that for ourselves, what does it look like for us to give ourselves to the instruction of God's Word? Remember, everything comes down to truth. What's true and what's our lens for determining what's normal? what's desirable, what's true, what God calls us to. It has to be the Scriptures, God's Word. And that should come through the church. The church should be is called to proclaim truth from God's Word. What does that look like for us? And also for us, uh, we've said always as a church, as a group of leaders, uh, from Acts, I want to say 17, but that may be wrong, the Noble Bereans, so when uh, Paul and Barnabas are going around and they're sharing the gospel, they would always start with the Jews before they'd go to the Gentiles. And it said of those in Berea that they were more noble than, than Jews who had rioted against the gospel. It said because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So these, the Jews, they're hearing something taught. They were going back to their Bibles and searching their Bibles to see, does this add up? Does this make sense? We've always encouraged folks at Lion Lamb not only to read your Bible, but to compare what you hear here on Sunday morning with your Bible. They should be one and the same. We shouldn't be divergent here. Are we giving ourselves, are we devoted to teaching from God's Word? Are we devoted to that? Are we devoted to fellowship together, to living life together? And let's just put that together with breaking bread and prayer. Are we devoted to living life together? Does that get expressed by sitting down with each other in our homes over meals? Is that normal? Is it normal for us to pray together? Does that express what our life looks like with each other in the local body? Now you know different meetings, you'll see in scripture in the New Testament, there's different meetings of the church. They don't all look the same. This meeting on Sunday morning is good for corporate worship. It's good for teaching. It's good for communicating things broadly about the church or to the church. What it's not good about is fellowship and praying together. It's not good about these three things, fellowshipping together, worshiping together in a small setting, sharing life together over and around the table, praying together. Guys, that that happens in our Small groups and in our home groups, this morning in welcome class, we had a number of people get up and say, "This is, this is the home group where we lead, and this is what we do. This is what it looks like." Uh, when I was on staff at Tobaga Bible Church, we would have welcome classes. It seemed like probably once a quarter at least, and they never stopped. We would have 30 to 40 people in every one of them, and we would tell every group the same thing. If you don't get connected in a small group here, or you don't have a service group that becomes your church family, don't stay at this church, go someplace else. Because we don't want you to come in and experience the big meeting and then go home. So I come in unknown, I listen to a service, I'm part of a service, and I go home unknown and disconnected. That is not what we're called to. And in fact, guys, if that's our experience, we're disobedient Christians. Because Christians are commanded to do a number of things with and for each other. You call them the one another passages, depending on the count, there's 60 to 70 of these things. Well, if you're not plugged into a local church as your church family, you're not living these out and you can't. So it's getting plugged in, not just on a Sunday morning in a big group, it's it's intentionally, relationally being plugged in with each other in a smaller setting so that people really know you and you really know them. And, you know, prayer together, when that occurs, it's different. Our home group is not small. I tell them, this is not a small group. They're like, we don't care. We want to stay together. Okay. But I'll tell you what has happened. We pray together every week, and I'll tell you, it's, and we worship together. But it's the highlight. We pray for probably 20 to 30 minutes every time we meet, and people have gotten to know each other, and prayer is personal. We don't take prayer with prayer requests. We just pray. It's significant and it's personal, but it's taking place in the context of a small group, a group small enough in which that can occur. It's hard for that to occur in a group on Sunday morning. For most of us, if we aren't in a small group, we simply won't be knit into the local church as our family the way God calls us to. Uh, Shortly after the events of Pentecost, when Acts 4 begins, this new church Luke tells us now it's about 5,000 people and many of those who'd come for Pentecost hadn't planned on staying this long so imagine this again because the the passages here about care for each other take into account that the situation was a little different it's not a, a typical occasion it's not life as it normally would have been so here's the deal So Jews from around their own empire, some of them, they traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. That's why they were there. So no credit cards. You know, you didn't take bank accounts with you. So if you went on a journey, you took your money with you, and you probably took enough money and maybe a little extra for your journey. And so you're going to go, and you're going to be there X number of days, and, you know, lodging and food, and then I'm going to go home. But what happens if you're part of that Pentecost Sunday group and you hear the preaching and the Spirit moves and you believe and you're now part of this new entity, you have the Holy Spirit, you're listening to the apostles, miracles are taking place. You know what? You don't want to go home because you want to stay and be a part of this and you want to learn and grow in what this new thing is God's doing. And so people outstayed their resources. So in this setting, you've got a unique situation because people had stayed far longer than they had brought their own substance for. So what's going to happen to them? So here we are, we're in Jerusalem or we're in Judea and we're part of this new work of God and our money ran out. What does it look like when our money runs out and we're members in the family of God? That's what this talks about. This is out of Acts 4. Luke records there, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So again, there's that thought of community and we're together with each other. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you've got a bunch of people who've run out of resources. What are we going to do for them or about them? Well, this describes this loving, we could say familial loving response to this need, we're all together, and we're aware of each other's needs, and we're aware that Joe and Mary ran out of money, or that, in fact, we'll talk about uh, Acts 6 in a minute, that these gals ran out of substance. What are we going to do for them? Well, remember, Jesus said nothing characterizes Christians more fully than love for each other, and what you see in the early church is love for each other, And so that's why you see this language. They're not only of one heart and soul, but they're sharing everything that they have. They're willing to be open-handed with each other. So they're making sure that whatever somebody else needs is provided. And again, this is a little unique, but they were moved by love, God's love in them, for other members of God's family, and they were making sure everyone was provided for. Uh, Kathy and I, in our early years of marriage, uh, Kathy was. Kathy had a college degree. She had a good-paying job. Mike, the freeloader, came and married her, moved back to Topeka. Had no real, uh, not much of a skill set, and uh, Kathy got pregnant right away. and And her job was miserable. And I asked her, "Please quit your job, and we'll figure. We'll we'll make it on what I make." Guys, this was 1980. I was making $5 an hour uh, at a couple of different jobs. And you can imagine, whatever you figure with inflation, $5 an hour then was not much. I know it's nothing now, but it wasn't much then either. And so we never, we never lacked, for sure. Never, never missed a meal, never were laid on a payment. But we just didn't have much money. And I can't tell you how many times, anonymously or not, we were given money, cars help work on the house over and over again over a period of about five years that was nor that was our normal experience in this church because the church was simply committed to loving each other as fellow members of god's family god's household and it routinely gave us the opportunity to speak of this to our parents we could brag about what god was doing and my dad's response was always the same He said, I've never heard of a church like this before. Never heard of a church like this before. This was normal in the early church, that the church was committed to each other's good and welfare and providing what they couldn't otherwise provide for. Now, here's the flip side. Verse 32, everything in common. Some Christians appeal to these texts because they're pushing a form of socialism. This is not early socialism. Where it says they didn't claim anything for themselves, they had everything in common. We're not going to get into this, but when you read, this this story continues in Acts 5. And in Acts 5, a couple sells a tract of land, and they take some of the proceeds and they give it to the apostles to distribute. And they lie about what they've done, which is sort of the point of that story. And so Peter says to them, The land was your land. You could do with it whatever you wanted. The money was your money. You could do with it whatever you wanted. There was no problem. You could keep it. You could could help others. You could not help others. It was yours. So this isn't pushing socialism. This was saying the church members, the family members in the church, loved each other and they were meeting real needs. This wasn't a welfare system of the day. If you look in Acts 6.1, and I'll just reference it, the early church in Jerusalem was feeding widows. And again, no doubt some of these gals had come and and outlasted their resources. So they're feeding widows who are both from a Jewish background and a Greek or Gentile background. And this story leads into the development of some of the early leadership in the church, probably the first deacon group, where we're taking care of the church body The church family is feeding these elderly women who need some help. That's what the church did, committed to, to do together. Now, if you look later, 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16, just to give balance on this, there wasn't a free lunch through the church's family. This Again, this was not welfare. 1 Timothy 5 describes what putting a widow on the church list for the church family to support her She could only be put on that list if certain criteria were true of her. Somebody couldn't walk in and say, I'm I'm a widow. Put me on the list. Pay for my lifestyle. It didn't work that way. It was responsibility. If you read in 2 Thessalonians 3, the early church was waiting for Jesus to return. And a bunch of these people, these able-bodied men and women, quit their jobs. And so... Now we're singing Kumbaya on the hill waiting for Jesus. But I got hungry. What am I going to get to eat today? And I need to put my head down someplace to sleep. What am I going to to do? Because I'm not working. I've spent my money. And in that situation, the Apostle Paul says, this was the second verse we had our girls memorize. The first was Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. The second was, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat we work we're we're to be diligent so you can see that out of love for God and for each other they were making sure each other was provided for and cared for appropriately but the church wasn't given out free lunches to the able-bodied they were expected to be helpful in fact in the case of widows it said their their families are their first threshold for help not the church so, so the early church experienced not only love and community life to, together, but they also experienced as a norm they were providing for each other's needs as was needful. Even understanding the unique elements of that time, so a lot of people had come and stayed longer than they had anticipated, these were the big rocks of life in the early church. Church as family or church as family members in God's household, these were the norms. You remember Jesus had said, I'm I'm commissioning you with this mission, and this mission is to proclaim the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the world so this church was given a mission so it wasn't just about banding together there's also this emphasis right of the church is gathered that's good the church is growing that's good the church is loving each other and providing for each other that's good but the church also has a mission and the mission is external the mission is outreach to the unsaved world For some people, mission of the church is in competition with life or investment in the church. And that is just not what you see in the New Testament, Acts or otherwise. Uh, Mission should grow out of the life of the family, the church. It should grow out of it. In Acts 13, this was the the first official sanctioned missionary journey. So this missionary journey was commissioned by a local church. The first one you see in Acts. And what's the setting there? Well, the setting is the prophets and the teachers in the church in Antioch are together fasting and worshiping and praying together. They're living life as a local church family, just like we've seen in Acts 2 and 4. And out of that, the Holy Spirit says, set Barnabas and Saul apart for the mission to which I've called them. That first missionary journey was mandated, it came out of a meeting of the local church. Those brothers acting as brothers in the Lord, getting together, sharing life, praying and worshiping together. So the mission came out of the life of the church. That is and should be the norm. Some Christians, by the way, are all in on supporting missions to the unknown, faceless crowds in some other part of the world but not so big on loving the brothers and sisters in the faith they rub shoulders with. It's easier to cut a check to people we don't know, isn't it? Than to live with fellow sinners like ourselves. But mission is meant to come out of the life of the church. So mission is the family business. But the family business is not in competition with the family life, right? One focuses and makes possible the other, Uh, Think of this in order. So we've talked recently about the fact that God's great work in any one of us is transformation into Christ's image, his likeness. So so we're going to end up with mission. So we start with God saves me. God saves me. And God begins this work of sanctification in me. But I also find, oh, and by the way, I'm part of a family, God's family, the household of faith, so I'm in a local church. And then what I find is God started his work in me, and now I realize that God is working not only in me, but now we're gathered. God is working in us. God is working in us. This is Ephesians 4. This is Colossians where it talks about the members of the body of Christ are serving each other. In the ways God has gifted and called us to, so that the church, this isn't mission, this is the church itself, the church family, the church family is being built up to a maturity that reflects Christ. That's out of Ephesians 4, you can read that later. So, God works in me, I gather with other family members, God works in us, and then God works through us, and the God works through us, that's mission, And mission is the family business. They're not in competition with each other. One comes from the other. And it's the church family that underwrites mission, isn't it? So guys, statistically, God calls very few of us, as a portion of the body of Christ, his family, as international missionaries. So uh, you'll hear people say this otherwise, but if you read the New Testament, you will not see this borne out. There's very few. In Antioch, of all those people, the Holy Spirit said, send two guys out. Two guys out of how many? Likely hundreds. Foreign missionaries, or if that's what we're thinking of as missions, that's the small percentage. That's the exception of the rule. A lot of mission is meant to occur. Matter of fact, you know, we support uh, works in Topeka that we know guys are sharing the gospel with school-aged children. And there's people in central Topeka that have never heard the gospel. And you shake your head, and it's like, that's impossible. No, it's not. Not impossible at all. So the family is building itself up. We're committed to each other. We're doing life together. And mission comes out of the family. That can be local. I'll mention an example of that here in just a minute. But it can also be international. Who's supporting the international ministries and missionaries? Well, people out of the local church family. Mission is the church family business. They're not in competition with one another. Uh, When our girls were growing up, our our goal for them educationally initially was we wanted them to go to a good Christian liberal arts college. Brian, until we priced that. (laughs) I kid you not. We took Rachel, our eldest. We went up to what I'm sure would have been a great school until we sit down with the financial counselor. And... It's my four daughters, Kathy and I, we're in there, we've seen it, it's a lovely place. Tell us about the money, (laughs) I told the gal. I said, uh, our our girls need to graduate debt-free, and Rachel is the first of four. And she did this. I knew we were done. (laughs) So... So all four of our girls went to Washburn University. That's where they got their degrees. Now, the upside on that financially was that this was unexpected. This wasn't our plan. wasn't what we thought would happen. We thought at 18, they'd move away to college. Well, by going to Washburn and living at home, they all graduated debt-free. You know, you can subsidize your expenses if you're living at mom and dad's house. But here was a very unexpected. We had no, no anticipation of this occurring. So we live near the university, and our girls, they're outgoing girls. They'd grown up at our table. They'd grown up hearing Scripture. They'd grown up hearing the responsibility of mission as something all of us are committed to. And so out of that, what we would find routinely was that there would be young men and women, believers and unbelievers, sharing our supper table at night because the girls are hanging out with them at school and inviting them home. So mission, the Halpin family was involved in mission simply because the girls are at, at school and they're talking to people and they're looking for opportunities to share the faith and plug in with other believers and they're bringing them home. That's mission. That's both. And for the church, the local church, it's, it's part of that as well. You know, all of us are on mission. Some churches will have a sign above the door, you know, when you go out. You're in your mission field. And we've talked a lot, right, about being intentional, looking for those gospel-centered conversations God gives us. We want to be serious about that. So mission is the church's business. It's the church family's business. There's no competition with building up the church and being missionally minded, both locally and in support of mission agencies. We're committed to both. Guys, i would tell you this too. One of the best ways to teach your children that loving others and sharing the gospel with others is important is to demonstrate that out of your own home and around your own table. Do your kids know that mission is your family business because it's God's family business? Do your kids know that it's important for us to invest in the church because that's what God wants and that's what they see in our life, in our family? This is where if you have a study sheet... Under the fourth point, Roman numeral four, this, uh, this is where, as we talk through this, just think about your own experience and your own family, and, and how does this apply to you? What has history here looked like or not look like? But this is sort of the, this putting on our own clothing related to this concept of the church's family. What's your experience, not someone else's, your own? What has my experience of the church's family been? What has that looked like do we see ourselves as members of the local church in which teaching fellowship prayer sharing meals remembering the lord worshiping together is that our experience that's the norm that's the given those are the big rocks in what ways has my experience reflected the example of those early chapter of acts Devoted to teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to communal living and worship, devoted to prayer. Again, the four big rocks that are normal here in the early church. Where do I find my own or my family's investment in the church family coming up short? If I look at that and say, well, that doesn't reflect my experience on my end of things. Where is that? What's behind that? We'll talk more about that in a minute. What are some of the benefits we've experienced through the church family? If, if everything feels like a God commands me to do something, it can certainly feel like a religious task to accomplish. I'm checking off boxes, so we're not, we're not talking about that. What you find is this, usually, and this is usually true anyway, you find usually what you get out of a thing is in direct proportion to what you invest in it. So if someone tells me they, they haven't enjoyed life in the local church family, I usually predict they haven't made much of an investment in the church family. So if I look at that, what's my experience been? What are some of the benefits? What, here's a question too. What would I change about my own involvement in the church as family? What would I change about myself or my family, my involvement? And how would that affect others? If I asked everyone here this morning, what do you wish was different about Lion Lamb Church, we would probably have a list that we wanted others to accomplish. This is the way I want you to treat me. This is what I want others to do for me. This is what I wish it was vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate. We'd get a list of what everyone else should do. But if we ask ourselves this question, what else should I do in the church, and how would that impact others? That's a different thing. I may never serve you vanilla ice cream instead of chocolate. But if you said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And how might that impact others? That's actionable, isn't it? And and here's the thing. And this is why, for me, this message related to, is is it significant theologically? Or is it timely, particularly timely applicationally? This is where this comes in. Because guys, the times we live in the times are not normal in any historic sense, the times you and I live in. Not normal historically. I think the great challenge to living life like we see in Acts and is called for in the epistles <clears throat> excuse me has nothing to do with understanding what the text says or what it means or what the call is. I think to the degree for most of us, that we don't experience life in the church family like this, it's due to we can't fit it into our busy and overcrowded lives. You and I live in a time in which we are not only more inundated with advertising and messaging than any time in the history of the world and temptation, but there, especially in the West, there's a call to a frenetic pace of life that does not allow, if we pay attention to it, does not allow the time, and the energy, and sometimes the finances to participate in the life of the church the way God wants us to it's the, as the normal Christian life. I'm going to go through a short list. <clears throat> I have some examples. You might have some others. Uh, do we make life in the church a priority high enough to live out life with others as God means us to? It's always about priorities. Always about priorities. If not, what have I traded? What have I traded? The church's family model for something else is taking it up. If I'm not living it, it means that time, that energy, whatever, it's going someplace else. So I've traded one thing for another, and that's always the case. What keeps us from meeting with the church family on Sunday mornings? What keeps us from regular participation in a small group where really this gets fleshed out? This this Life in the local church as an extended church family really occurs in small groups. What keeps me from that? Now, I'd say too, on the front end, if you are convicted this morning, I hope you're heavily convicted, but I don't want anyone to feel guilted, okay? So for some people, you you work on a work schedule that really compromises your ability to plug into a regular schedule. That's true for people here, absolutely. Other people have medical and health challenges that simply don't allow them the normal freedom that's a given for most of us. So there's reasons. There's things outside individuals' control that may affect them. So we're not talking about those things, okay? We're talking about our intentional or unintentional priorities. Usually it's the good things that are crowding out the best things, secondary things that don't leave room for the primary. So here's my list. Hobbies. Now, I could have just said hunting and fishing for some guys. Hunting and fishing would cover that. But hobbies broadly, and by that I mean this. I do things, I invest time, energy, and resources in things that I find personally rewarding, encouraging, fun, whatever. No one's saying those aren't good things. And guys, for most of us, I think hobbies can be an incredibly good thing. If you live a busy life and life takes a lot out of you, Having something that you feel built up or encouraged for, something that gives you life back, that's an entirely positive thing. But if it's lived to the degree that it doesn't allow your investment in the church as a norm, then it's probably excessive. So we're not saying don't have hobbies. We're just asking the question, do, do my involvements in other things I enjoy doing, do those prevent me from living as a member of the local family of God. Uh, for many Christian families with children, life is primarily consumed by being a taxi service to juniors events. Soccer tournament, matter of fact, decades ago, I remember I would, I would notice someone was absent on Sunday morning. I say, well, where is so-and-so? Well, they're at the soccer tournament. I realized two decades ago, soccer tournaments are now Sunday morning. Soccer tournaments have replaced church for Christian families all over the country on Sunday morning. And think of this. For many, chasing down sports and activities for children is the primary investment of parenting. Leading children raised under those priorities with the clear knowledge that sports and activities, not the church family, are the priority for a normal Christian life. If I raise my kids that way, I've demonstrated to them what their real priorities should be. It's not the church. We do church when when it's convenient, when it makes sense, but otherwise we're all about all these other things. For many families, participation in home groups isn't possible because the numbers of activities related to school and sports takes up so much time and energy. And again, please don't hear me condemning sports school activities again it's an issue of priorities and the big picture are we hitting the big rocks the things that god considers most important and guys there's been a capitulation parenting is about calling your children up to adulthood it's not about making adults children okay and that's this culture this culture has said we like babies and kids and so we want you to be a baby as long as you can be a baby. We want, you, we want grown adults to try and revert and become some form of children because everything's about staying down. The call for Christian parents is to call children up, up to adulthood. Christ, uh, parenting is discipleship. So that's what we should be doing. So school's great, activities are great, sports are great, not opposed to any of them. But where do they fit in? to the big rocks that God calls us to in life in the church family. We have so many options that a lot of the priorities simply get left out. Here's a variation on the theme. In fact, I think this one, uh, this is a big one. Here's a variation on the theme. It's not that I don't go to church or meet with other Christians, it's, but it's this variation. I'm involved in a variety of churches or Christian groups and activities and simply the breadth of my involvements means I can't invest deeply in any single one. So it goes something like this. I go to church one place on Sunday morning because I like the teaching. I go to another church group on Wednesday night because some of my friends are there. I, I organize as many activities with as many Christians from around the horn as I can. So that keeps my schedule busy and I feel fulfilled. The problem is... There's no commitment to any group. I can't invest deeply in any one group because I've spread myself so thin. This is a major thing. In fact, this really is the church as commodity. Guys, this started probably 30 to 40 years ago. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Group, said this. This was part of his paradigm on churches. He said it's not if people leave your church, it's when. And he said, our our model for doing church ministry is to make the back door a little further from the front door than it would be otherwise. It's a given. And the church as seeker-sensitive is part of this as well. It's a commodity. So it's the church's commodity. I go to this church because I get this product. I go to this group because I get a different product there. You know, Kathy doesn't like it when I go grocery shopping with her, but I love the grocery store. And I love to shop at the grocery store. And you know why? It's because it's options on food. Everywhere, everywhere you look, options on food. I love this. Well, that mentality is now in the church. And so now it's, what can this group give me? And what can I get from that group? It's, it's the church family, not as a family, but as a commodity. It's, it's basically a buy and sell It has nothing to do with family relationship. I'm I'm simply buying and selling the goods and services that I want. It's not the model for the church from the New Testament. Uh, Here's another one. Our family of origin as competition for God's family. I'll make this short. Uh, Matthew 12, 50. Jesus, you remember, he's he's going up and down during his ministry years, up and down through um, Israel, and his family's worried for him. They, They think he's lost. Some marbles. So they're following him, and they say, hey, we need to take him back home. We need, we need to sit him down and tell him how things are. And so Jesus is there, and his friends tell him, hey, your mom's out here, and your brothers and your sisters, they're here. And his, his response is this, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Now, please understand, we read this with a yawn this was radically radical when jesus said this so jesus the son of god instituted the law of moses the call of abraham and his heirs and if you're a jew what is everything about everything is about your family of origin everything who's my father what family group is my father from what tribal group am i connected to within the bounds of israel everything's about your family of origin Who you marry is about your family of origin, depending on which tribe. Don't marry a girl from that tribe. Got to marry a girl from this tribe, depending on how heredity works in those groups. Do you see what I'm saying? Everything is about family of origin, and Jesus, in the model he instituted in Israel, now downplays it and says, it's not so much your family of origin, it's whoever does the will of my father. Who do I share spiritual paternity with? That's now the issue. Kathy and I grew up in Topeka. Our families are here. Our parents were here. And, you know, we've got this new church family. We're making our major investment in that. But you know what? We're aware of our siblings and our parents. We want to honor our parents. We want to be there for them. So we figure out, here are big rocks, the local church's family, not my family of origin, much that we don't share in common. But we still want to be there for them. So these are the things we can do for mom and dad. And we would say to my parents, no kidding, mom and dad, this is what we can do. Not more than that, you know, financially, meals, yard mowing, I mean, you name it. And it's a good thing to care for parents, right? Family of origin, absolutely. But that was all, that wasn't replacing life in the local church as family. And for a lot of people, there's such an emphasis on the family of origin, that it's actually discounting what Jesus said here that your major emphasis is not your family of origin, it's the church family. Is the family of origin competing with that? And you can also get variations on that theme that I won't go into now. Let me close with just some remarks. We don't choose who is in our church family any more than parents choose their children from a lineup. Like happy parents, we welcome whoever God brings into our local family. Lion and lamb is what God's made it. It's not what Mike made it. It's not what the elders made it. We don't control who comes in, right? We're, we're the family God's made, just like your family of origin. This is who God brought along. Life in the family makes demands of us and on us, demands that require us to grow into likeness, or we don't fulfill them. So we can serve and pray instead of merely pursuing our own desires. Life in the family makes me grow up. Life in the family brings heartache in the face of loss and failure as only those who invest in the lives of others can know. I would tell you if you can leave a church or others in your church can leave you and there's no impact, then there was no investment. No impact means no investment. No impact means no importance. The heartache and loss is in proportion to the depth of the relationship and the investment. If you've hung out with people and prayed for them and supported them and they've been with you and they tell you I'm checking out of life, it hurts because you invested in them because it was real. Life in the family can be minimized. It can be marginalized when we seek maximum benefit with minimum commitment. But that formula ends up being a net loss, not gain in the family of God. The early church loved each other. They were committed to each other in the bonds of love. If we want to grow up, if we want to change the world, if we want to have eternal significance in the lives of others, we stay put and we invest in the family of God. Now, foreign missions, we're not talking about that this morning, right? Mission as the business of the family church. Some people will leave because God's called them elsewhere. Short of those calls of God, we stay put and that's how we grow up. Invest in God's family. Well, rise with me if you would. and We're going to close with a text from 1 Timothy in which the church is described as the household, i.e. the family of God. Read with me, please. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth.